14 minutes it is uh, after 8 p.m. You tuned in to Metro FM Talk here on the Mighty Metro. Now it's our Thought Leader Thursday segment. And uh, this evening we embark on part two of our conversation with advocate Tembega Ngukai the author of the book Land Matters, South Africa's Failed Land Reforms and the Road Ahead. And Ikona, uh, so you can certainly go check that out. And uh, you'll be uh, able uh, uh, to uh, access that book now, uh, the advocate joins me on the line. And uh, advocate, let's maybe start off here. Good evening and welcome, and uh, thank you once again. Gospel uh, Thank you for the invitation again. Um, I must first congratulate you. I noticed that you had written an article in the New Frame. Yes, 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 um, yes, yeah. Which, yeah, is absolutely wonderful. I, I picked it up yesterday. No, thank you very much. Thank you very much. Uh, very interesting series there on inequality um, that we are writing on. And I guess a lot of what we're going to talk about now um, is interwoven with some of those, um, you know, uh, issues that I was trying to unpack in that piece, um, which is really about historicizing um, yes. this project of accumulation by dispossession. Um, and I think it's central to to the debates um, around around land reform. I mean, last week when we were talking, you know, we were talking about uh, different tenure forms, uh, the failures of the three legs of the land reform project, um, yeah. and those are themes I want us to to come back to. But I want maybe for us to think through now this this issue of, I guess, patrilineal uh, traditional institutions in yeah. the allocation of land, in the utilization of land, and I guess you know in the um, distribution of rents from the land uh, within the framework of the former homelands. Because, you know, uh, in Daovel, Akuyo is not too far from where, I guess, the, the Kala Reserve case uh, and many yes. other issues came up. And, and maybe that's a good entry point to unpack for us some of the issues around traditional authority, which are by no means, uh, uh, you know, uh, simple, but are very complex and very complicated um, in the democratic era. Yeah. No, I mean, it's fascinating. Um, so... So, I mean, I suppose there are two questions when one examines the sort of traditional authorities. The one is their political role. Mm. The other is their role in relation to the land, which you can also classify as their economic role. Traditional authorities, broadly, in in the Southern African uh, region, played different roles. There were instances where they had absolutely no control over the land. Mm. But then there were other instances where they had greater control over the land. But what the British did was to create a uniform policy. And that uniform policy essentially tried to create layers of control over indigenous communities. The primary purpose was to exert political control, but they didn't have enough people to do that. They they just were not enough uh, British magistrates or or British bureaucrats to spread around. So the question was how to exert uh, political control over, quote-unquote, native tribes. So one way of doing that was what Mamdani calls indirect rule. Mm. And indirect rule meant appointing chiefs with some claim to traditional authority, 
but ultimately reporting to the Supreme Chief of All Natives, the Governor General. This we see pretty much in Natal as a strategy of Theophilus Shapstein. When he destroys true indigenous forms of control, he does three things. The one is to destroy those traditional institutions of leadership that, are, that do not toe the line. Second is to create new ones, uh, constructing from below. And the third one is to create new regions, so new geographic boundaries that are then set up. Mm. But in order to ensure there is actual control over native people, there is then a linkage drawn between political authority and the control over the land so that individuals cannot get land allocations unless they go through a chief. Communities also cannot have access to the land unless that is done via a chief. And so suddenly chiefs have powers that they traditionally did not enjoy. So chiefs that were truly uh, merely conduits for cultural norms suddenly become also instruments for economic control. This is then passed through as law, a transition from politics. It's passed through as law in the form of a native administration law. And this is passed already in, I think, 1869. The modern version of the Act is passed in 1927 under the um, Union government, which no longer merely applies in KwaZulu, mm. but it applies across the country. But its foundation is the same. The opening provision of the Native Administration Act is to install the Governor-General, basically a government official, mm. as the Supreme Chief of all Natives. But thereafter, it creates native areas, native yards, and in each native area and the native yard, there is a chief, mm. sometimes a crawl chief. So, so, so Landoka and why develop basically this, yes, this whole exactly. native, native yard, yard mm. native area. Mm. Mm. So, O N Y are precisely they are the consequences of the native administration system. Mm. Mm. I want us to pause here for a second, and and Kasbuya, I want us to to unpack the complication that now arises in a democratic era. Uh, legislatively, yes. economically, and otherwise, um, yes. with the role now of traditional authorities, but how that also interfaces with some of the things we were talking about last week uh, around the tenure forms, title, deed, lease, um, because you know these issues m- might come across as academic, but I would argue that uh, they are quite material and very real, uh, especially now in the context of the transition underway uh, in Guazulu Natal. So we're going to take a brief break, and when we come back, we'll continue. 23 minutes it is after 8 p.m. It's our Thought Leader Thursday segment and we're in conversation with uh, advocate Tembega Ngugaitobi and it's the second part of the conversation we started last week uh, and uh, on uh, questions of land reform and uh, some of the, I guess, difficulties and issues in the politics, political economy uh, and even, I would argue, I guess, um, uh, the uh, lawfare uh, of uh, around or around land reform and uh, uh, the advocate joins us this evening and is our guest for the thought leader thursday segment 
Advocate, um, I, I like how you've painted the picture or this idea yeah. of the, you know, uh, governor general um, or any other person as the ultimate chief uh, of all, you know, natives as subjects uh, in many instances of the crown, um, as it was thought of then. And how that creates a certain path dependence, uh, both not only in the rural context, but also in the urban areas yeah. as well, uh, with the kind of history that we have of migration and the cheap labor basis of our economy. But I want us to to think about the complications brought about by the democratic transition and the nature of our transition uh, to this role of traditional authorities uh, in the context, I guess, of some of what we've seen, um, you know, both in but also in the Ngonyama Trust case where it does seem that there is this legislative duality. So if I happen to have been born, you know, somewhere in Lady Frey, in the former Transkai, uh, that there's certain sort of differences in legislative claim to land than I would have if I were maybe in an urban center. Yes. So the ambiguity with the native administration system has always been whether you are a chief over people or a chief over territory. So, for the most part, on the political side, the native administrators insisted that you are a chief over people. Mm. But that presupposed a particular conception of people as fixed in a particular area. Chieftaincy over land was an ambiguous concept that was not quite accepted. But land was static in the sense that once the colonial administrators decided on the concept of native reserves, Mm. people and land were fixed in one place. And so your travel to Johannesburg did not change your tribal affiliation. Hmm. notwithstanding your own self-identification. So you couldn't no longer identify. In other words, you were being ethnicized. Mm. Once closer, always closer. Hmm. You couldn't acquire a new nationality and a new ethnicity. And that was part and parcel of the purification of ethnicity. And apartheid was actually very good in this. It was very good in the creation of ethnic groups Mm. because its very foundation was initially race, but later on, in order to perfect the concept of racial purity, it had to go into ethnic purity. Mm. This was notwithstanding the fact that traditionally, tribal identities were not fixed identities. There were no fixed boundaries. People could be closer today and Zulu tomorrow. They could be Mbondo today Mm. and Tembu tomorrow. So the idea of fixed tribal identities is entirely an apartheid creation. What we face in the uh, area of the creation of the Bantu stands is the fixing of political area, geographic area, as well as tribal identity, so that you can now be identified as a pure tribal subject. Mm. When the new democratic dispensation uh, arrives, something has happened through the social and cultural fabric. Things that were created during the colonial era have become accepted as norms. 
So the fact that I'm now ethnically closer has become part of my own identity. And I've forgotten that even the cross identity was an identity made up. Mm. And someone else who comes from KwaZulu Natal has accepted their Zulu identity. So the new uh, democratic establishment builds a legal system on a faulty foundation which perpetuates rather than upends this tribal identity. And part of the problem with the system is that it accepts the boundaries. And now you know when the boundaries were ultimately fixed. It was under the Black Administration Act of mm. 1951. Mm. And it set out all of the tribal boundaries in the country. In fact, it started off as the Tribal Administration Act, and then it was changed to the Bantu Administration Act, and then it was changed to the Black Administration Act. But it fixed all of the tribal boundaries throughout the country. The new dispensation accepted those tribal boundaries and did not change them. It then passed two laws. One was a law for the reclaiming of the land, which is the Restitution Act. The other was a law for the reclaiming of chieftainships. And the two often conflict because the reclaiming of the land is based on a 1913 provision and the reclaiming of chieftainship is based on a 1927 Hmm. provision. And often people do not recognize the boundaries as a matter of historical fact. And yet, from 1951 onwards, they were fixed in those geographic areas. Mm. In contemporary South Africa, until the issue of boundaries is resolved, so that either we accept that there are no fixed boundaries and there is no fixed ethnic identity, mm. and all of this can change over time. Mm. And we align yeah. it with land. So Unfortunately, let, let me try and understand the, that. So, so you're saying we need to, one, interrogate the history of the boundaries that we have and recognize that they're not immutable, but they're an outcome yes. of a certain process. But in addition to that, be able to transpose those boundaries over the land question. Um, and, and I'm trying to understand, I guess, to what end. Yes. Now, we need to disentangle rather than transpose. Mm. Disentangle. The reason why that is crucial is because if chieftainship is linked to land, in other words, chiefs control the land, that is historically a contradiction over who, in fact, controls the land. Was the land controlled by chiefs or was it controlled by the people? If we then accept that the control over land by chiefs is an invention of the union government. And the purpose of that invention was to impose political control from the top. Then one of the purposes of the new constitutional system is to change that. It's to change it from below. So that chiefs, to the extent that they have a role to play over land, is one of custodianship, not ownership. Mm. The actual ownership devolves downwards. And so this is why there is a necessity for disentanglement. Currently, the trajectory of the chiefs is towards greater control over the land. It's towards asserting themselves 
not only as custodian, but as the ultimate owner. And you know where this relationship began? It began under this idea of trusteeship, that there was somehow state trusteeship over the land because Mm. individuals and communities couldn't have ownership of the land. Now, where you see this most um, visible is in the context of Ingonyama Trust, where individuals want stands and Women who want land allocation, we know this for a fact, simply cannot obtain land allocation unless they do so with the permission of the chief. And if the chief says no, there can be no land allocation. And if the chief insists on a male member of the family rather than a woman, there will be no land allocation. We also see this where we come from in the villages of the Transkai. Mm that there is a disproportionate control over the land by traditional authorities, including in the context of Tala Reserve, in an area where there were no chiefs. Mm. And even this case was about a headman, you know, Usbonda, uh, rather than in any meaningful way. Yes, and this was mm. the most fascinating thing because our understanding of traditional authorities is that traditional authorities are born into royal families. And because of birthright, they acquire the leadership of a particular community. And if we then use the Shepstein formulation, the control over territory as well. But the Tala Reserve area actually punctures the logic of that assumption because it tells us that there was no uniform historical um, understanding of the role of leadership. And it takes away chieftaincy mm. from birthright into area of contestation. Sure, sure. In the Canada Reserve area, people used to be voted or chosen by the community according to certain attributes, not merely birthright, attributes which may be leadership, which may be intelligence, which may be generosity, fairness, all of the usual attributes we use today to select our leaders as politicians. But that became custom, because custom is no more than practice. Mm. And what happens is because of these understandings that people who are headmen or traditional leaders are born into this idea of the royal family, which is, by the way, written and inscribed into statute. They refuse to leave with the support of the provincial government, Uh. whose entire imagination of traditional leadership is imbued with this notion that actually this happens by veteran, which is in conflict with lived reality, Uh. which is not custom. Uh. And the judges, fortunately, in siding with Professor um, Lungsil and Tabeza, who actually wrote the history of the area sure, sure. and researched it by reference to archives. And then he came with this beautiful history illustrating quite powerfully that the ways in which custom evolves are different from mm. area to area, mm. unlike what the British wanted to do, which was a uniform native policy across the country. Yeah, homogenize you to divide, to divide you, basically. Um, you know, to create these homogenous institutions that are agnostic of history, agnostic of any difference among African people. Um, 
I mean, I want us to, to maybe shift slightly from this one because I think a lot of people who are engaging us on Twitter, I guess, are having their, their minds blown by this because, you know, when we talk about identities, we talk about them in very static ways. Um, and, and I want us to maybe bring it a bit closer to where the public imagination is on this question of land. Yes. There's this dominant uh, sense that we need a constitutional amendment and we need it as of yesterday that effectively empowers the state to expropriate land without compensation. Uh, and there's a seeming consensus, I guess, within certain part of organizations that would be seen to the left of the political spectrum or center-left, if I can say that. Um, and yet, very little, I guess, articulation of what happens after, be it on tenure, be it on the role of traditional authorities, be it on allocative mechanisms and all of what that looks like. So let's start there with Section 25 and maybe talk also about you know, some of your thoughts on allocative mechanisms, beneficiary selection, um, and the economics and political economy of it as well. Yes. Yeah, I mean, if we can look at the structure of Section 25. So the, 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 the first thing about the section is that the, the, the ultimate key to the section lies in Section 25, Sub 5, Sub 6, and Sub 7. Now, that's the heart of the section. That's the section that ultimately focuses on the three legs to land reform, restitution, redistribution, and land tenure reform. Now, there are structural problems with all three. We have tried them for 25 years. There have been failures. Well, there have been more failures than successes. After the amendment, nothing would change on those sections, those three sections, which are the heart of Section 25. Mm. Nor will the structures underpinning the functioning of those sections change. So the heart of the problem will remain precisely where we are today. If we then go to the amendment itself, the amendment is on Section 25.2, and even there it is on a narrow uh, element of the section. It is on purely the compensation provision. Now, all studies that have been done, whether you look at the Motante panel report or you look at the uh, Muelasa judgment of the Constitutional Court, all of the studies, none of the studies have ever pointed to the compensation provision as inhibiting greater or faster land reform. They've all pointed to structural constraints to the land reform process. So, the first big point people should remember is that after the amendment, the structural constraints will remain. And why is that so? It's because we are not fixing real problems for real people. We're fixing an imaginary problem. Mm. But there is another way of looking at the amendment, which is it's actually not about fixing real problems for real people. But it is a metaphor. Right? It is a metaphor for an incomplete project mm. of transformation. Mm. So when people talk of expropriation without compensation, they don't mean it literally. They mean that there should be a return to the land question. And so if we use it in the metaphorical, in the second metaphorical sense, then of course one can see the attraction to the idea. But then if we are attracted to the idea, we need to expand our horizon mm. so that we focus on the real structural constraints. 
Yeah, and uh, I think it's unfortunate that we have run out of time, but that's a, a perfect point for us to leave uh, the conversation, maybe with a last comment on your end, just on, on this issue of framing the problem, not as what needs to necessarily be solved, uh, you know, for the poor person who's living on a farm, uh, but effectively as something that might have appeal to people who uh, have massive concerns about how our transition occurred and the landlessness yep. that continues in this country. Your, your view on uh, this issue of tenure security, um, not just in agricultural land, but um, in the case of many people whose you know, uh, uh, land holdings are either insecure, people who are facing eviction, and what we've done on that particular one. Yes. So just to complete the thought on the sure. last question. So, so the big problem is the problem of land injustice. Mm. So that's the big problem we face. It's the fact that there hasn't been land justice in South Africa. So if we then narrow it to tenure security, we face two big problems with tenure security. So the one is what we've just spoken about, which is what to do about precarious forms of tenure of people living under traditional authorities. There are 22 million of those people, right? So it's about ensuring that they have greater control over their own land. They've got greater rights over the land. So we take away the power from the chiefs. Mm. We devolve it downwards to the people. We don't have to call that private title. We don't have to call that private property. Mm. But it certainly needs to be stronger than the precarity that it currently is exposed to right now. The second problem of tenure is the problem of people living in the farms. Mm. We have very powerful institutional mechanisms and very progressive laws. But there is a lot of slippage through these laws Mm. that it is unable to capture the bulk of people that are losing tenure. Mm. The studies done by the investors of the Western Cape show that we have more people that have been evicted from farms than we ever had during the entire apartheid period. Let's pause here. Let's pause here and then we'll stay on the line. So, advocate, you know, SAPC. So, we quickly had to quickly had to dash there to to a, a quick spot break. But I want you to complete the point you were making around some of the research on evictions coming out of the UWC. Uh, as you complete the point on uh, how we get tenure yeah. security right, especially for yeah. people who are tenants and people who are working on farms. Yes, precisely. So, we have people who are labor tenants. We have people who are farm workers. And farm dwellers, mm. even if they don't work, but they're just dwellers in the farms. So we have evicted more people in the post-apartheid era sure. than we ever did during the entire 40, 50 years of the apartheid period. And this is despite the progressive institutions and the progressive laws. Mm. So there is clearly a slippage. The institutions are not working for the benefit of poor people. And mm. so if we have to fix real problems. We've got to look at the structures we've designed, and we've got to look at the laws that we've designed, that they are not protective enough. And then, of course, you've got what we don't speak about a lot, which is the World Bank published a report in 2018 which showed 62% urban migration. So people are leaving the villages to their city centers. Mm. When they arrive in the city, they live in informal settlements. And the informal settlements have been growing. We have just too many people living in the city center in completely precarious forms of tenure. Mm-hmm. 
So we've got to strengthen yeah. their ability to live in the land and we've got to improve the conditions. Yeah. But that means we must think about the connection between land and economic sure. opportunity. Sure. We have not been drawing the linkages. We have a policy that breaks housing away from land. Hmm. Advocate, I mean, now you're taking us in another direction, but if see up, because we have run out of time, but real pleasure uh, having had the opportunity to speak to you over the last two weeks or so. And I think that just that last point, if, I, if you read it in the context of the billions that are going to be spent in the upgrade of informal settlements, one gets a sense that we probably, I guess, in some of these instances, don't uh, place these things in a concrete context. Uh, because uh, for me, it's still a bit unclear around what uh, will the economic location of those upgraded and modernized informal settlements be in a context where a lot of these questions around space and value haven't been uh, resolved in any meaningful way. But Manbulele Mshagaz Gakulu for being generous with your time and, and uh, uh, joining no, us this evening. No, Manbulele, you're doing a great job. Um, I've been absolutely excited to be with you in the past uh, two Thursdays. It's been a pleasure. And uh, keep up the good work. And once again, uh, uh, and uh, well done uh, on your appointment as an acting judge. Yeah, you yeah. know, uh, someone needs to do this uh, rather <laughs> very lonesome and uh, difficult job. Sure, sure. <laughs> we'll certainly read those judgments. Come down, All right, wonderful. Shop, shop, and go see. That there was Advocate Tembega Ngokai Tobi speaking to us uh, this evening uh, for our Thought Leader Thursday segment. Agambega segment. Yeah, but uh, we'll continue to bring you Zonga Zondo. Uh, that are insightful and that uh, provoke us to think in different ways uh, through that particular segment. And I think many of you are moved by, uh, I guess, this uh, question in what I call the native reserve. Um, and that's not just in the homelands or the former Bantu stands, but even in the areas that were seen as native yards, native units in many of our townships. And this question of patrilineal uh, traditional authority and the economic and material dimensions of that. Tandre uh, Figa Shabalala is my next guest as we go into our culture talk. And uh, tonight we talk about the